everybody has a topic on the exam that they really just don't like. Whether it's hand therapy or psych or neuropeds, whatever it is, everybody's got a kryptonite. Well, I've got your secret weapon. If you're enjoying the podcast, I've been putting out video courses called 450 Formula. They're designed to make these giant, complex, difficult topics as simple and easy as possible, just like the podcast. You get all the big ideas, the foundational information, and you walk away with simple, easy mnemonics that make remembering everything a breeze. So if you're looking for a little extra help on those big, bad topics, or you just want to knock them all out together, then head over to 450formula.com and take a look. There's some free videos we can get a good feel for how it works. Check it out and get your 450. Hang in there. Hey, we're back. Okay, today we're talking about test-taking strategies, how to approach studying for and taking the exam. It's going to be awesome. Real quick before that, though, I've got one clarification from the last episode about splints. In the Facebook group, OT Exam Prepper Study Group is the name of it on Facebook. If you look up, you look it up, you should be able to find it. Um, Don Baker brought it to my attention that I was not clear about a certain kind of splint. It is the thumb spica. Um, originally in there and also in the audio, I didn't clarify the exact sort of shape of it, that it's supposed to begin in the forearm and actually cover the entirety of the wrist and then sort of uh, isolate that thumb. She brought that up, and I wasn't clear about it. I've since changed the uh, the study guide to reflect that a little better, um, but I just wanted to point out that that is uh, a, an important part of the um, thumb spica, especially for treating DeCarvin syndrome, because it affects muscles and tendons that, that sort of stretch down through the wrist, and so that stability to the wrist is very important. This was big. So big thanks to Don. Um, this was a great example of what I hope that the Facebook group can be used for uh, now and in the future. So if you're not already a part of it, go ahead and join. Um, yeah, if there's any sort of like cool study things that you've found that have been helpful, or if there's anything about the podcast that needs clarification, or you want to just request topics or whatever, that's the place to do it. So again, OT exam prepper study group on Facebook. Check it out. Hey, all right, here we go. So today we're going to be covering some test taking and studying strategies that are relevant to the exam instead of covering information that itself will appear on the exam. I know that's a little different. I hope you st everyone will still find it valuable, but also don't worry. I've got more content of stuff that's actually going to be on the exam coming up really soon, hopefully in a much shorter time frame than the gap between most of my episodes. Um, but I think this is going to really be valuable. So just a quick bit of background on me. I was that annoying kid in school and also in grad school for our, my MOT program that just sort of did well on exams. Um, yes, I studied but I probably didn't stress about school to the degree that most of my other classmates did. I'm definitely not like your typical type A personality, which I think a lot of OTs kind of tend to fall in there, like very diligent, very, um, uh, I don't know how to put it, like very concerned about school, want to do exceedingly well on things, want to feel very, very, very informed. And uh, anyway, so just a little bit perfectionist maybe would be the simplest way to put it. And I don't really fall into that category. I'm a little bit more low-key, low-stress, but I'm very deadline-motivated, which led to a lot of like 
like late night essays and like last minute cramming for exams. But also I've always just had this gift to be able to do really well on exams. It's a great way for me to demonstrate that I know things and I feel like I've just always sort of understood how they work. And that's been a big advantage for things like standardized tests, big, big ones like the SAT or the GRE and the NBCOT exam, um, as well as, you know, just general tests in school. So I don't pretend like me being good at this stuff demonstrates that I'm like smarter or more qualified to do X, Y, or Z than anybody else. Um, It's just something I've always been a little gifted at. And I want to try to give you guys a little um, perspective on how I approach things and what's really been beneficial to me and things that I've observed are different about how I approach an exam compared to many other people who tend to struggle with the exam by their own admission. Okay, here we go. So we're going to start with some like big picture about how to study, like what we're looking for out of like you know, our experience with the exam and then how to approach the exam itself. So big picture here, big, big picture. You need to take the exam and you need to pass it. Now notice you pass or fail and there's really no difference in like like gradation between those two things, right? There's a single outcome and it's you pass or you fail. It does not matter if you get a 530 on the exam or you get a 450 exactly. You pass. That's it. You're done. You're good. Um, If you get less than that, then sadly you fail and you'll need to take it again, which totally sucks. Anybody who's on their second or more attempts of this exam, like, man, my heart goes out to you because it was awful enough to take it once. But, um, Anyway, so our goal is to just pass, right? It doesn't matter how much better you do than just the minimum. Obviously, now don't get me wrong, I totally understand that we want to maximize our chance to pass every time you're going to spend this huge amount of money on the exam. But I'm just saying this to like kind of change your perspective a little bit on how you're preparing for this thing. Perfection is inefficient. There is like a philosophical argument to be made that a 451 any score higher than the what you needed to pass and get the exact same outcome may be indicative that you spent too much time and like probably stressed a little more than you really had to to just get through it. Now don't don't get me wrong, it's great. We would definitely want to know as much as we can going into this. I'm not saying slack off. I'm just saying that like you need if you really want to study effectively, if you really want to actually maximize your chance to pass, you should be approaching this from like an efficiency perspective rather than a I need to know everything perspective. And that's because you only have so much time to prepare and then so much like brain real estate to hold all this information when you take the exam. So basically my point boils down to this. Studying absolutely everything, like starting at the beginning, covering each topic and going into so much detail that it was impossible for you to come across a question that you did not know the answer to would be a great strategy if you had infinite time and the ability to remember absolutely everything you came across. Sadly, you have neither. So trying to do that will work against you. You'll probably end up having studied unevenly because you'll spend the first half of all the time you have studying going into too much detail on certain topics, and then you won't have enough time left to go into enough detail on other topics. So just Focusing on the generals, being able to answer almost all the questions on every topic, and just being okay missing some of the really specific and out-of-left-field type questions that will inevitably come up on the exam is going to work in your favor and net you a higher score than you would otherwise.
So just to be absolutely clear, I am not saying slack off, party, only study a little, and then go take your exam, and I'm sure it'll be fine. What I am saying is do it smart. Okay, so that's sort of the big picture. We want to you be as efficient as possible as we can to do this exam. So for the studying, I came up with a mnemonic because that's what I do. Now, again, this is not something you need to know for the exam. This mnemonic is almost just like, <laughs> like it's just it's just me like kind of just doing my thing. Um, but so the mnemonic is again, don't remember this, but it's R R R like a R like R like a pirate. It's R R R red beard, which is a sick mnemonic by anybody's standards, I think. So, uh, <laughs> um, so again, A R A R A R and then red beard. So these are all the things that I've found valuable about learning to, to take tests. Okay. So the first one is R R R A R A R A R. And that's active recall, active recall. And you guessed it, active recall. So the point of studying is not to know something for an hour. It's not to know it for a day. It's to know it for as long as you need to know it to know it for the exam. And it's also to be able to conjure that out of nowhere. You won't have your textbook with you when you're taking the exam. So you need to have this in your brain ready to just conjure, right? To pull up, to remember, to recall this information. The way your brain gets good at doing that is active recall, okay? If you take one thing away from this episode, it should be this. Active recall is important and the only way you will be able to remember this stuff for the exam. So what is active recall? That is where you are, you like are able to just conjure the information out of nowhere. So people study incorrectly very, very often. If you are reading a textbook and while you're reading it, you think, huh, wow, like, I think I understand this. That makes sense. I'll definitely remember this. And then you never think about it again. Guess what? Exam day is going to come. And whether or not you remember that is unlikely. I'm telling you. So active recall is super important. This is where you train your brain to be able to pull this stuff back again. So how do you do this? Active recall, you can, you know, learn something, read it, study it, try to understand it. And then what you want to do is you want to sort of maybe like set an alarm or something like that. You want to set, you want to like schedule out almost times to remember this stuff. So you, you study something in your book, you're studying all about pediatrics, you know, each thing that you, as you study it, you might want to like close your eyes or shut your book momentarily, save your spot, or like just not look at the computer screen. And then you want to like repeat everything back to yourself. You want to put it in your own words. You want your own brain to have to like process this information and put it out into the world. Okay. And then you want to do that again at a later point. And then you want to do it again at a later point. And you want to do it again at a later point. You want to get good at actively recalling this information. So if you're studying something for like an hour, you're going to spend an hour on peds. I would then like shut it all, like put it all away for a second, take a break. Well, like it's gotten early a break. This is still studying, but take a moment to then without any of the other stuff in front of you, recall all the major points of what you were just studying. If you want to, you could re- you could cue yourself on what to remember by like the names of the things that you studied. So for example, if you were starting about like Parkinson's disease, you can you, like cue yourself by just writing, like keep a, like a list of the, the topics you've studied and just write Parkinson's disease. And then all the things that you've been learning and remembering about that, when you see Parkinson's disease, 
that's when you want to then regurgitate all that stuff. So if you get used to seeing Parkinson's disease and then having all this information come to mind, that is the golden, that's, that's gold right there. That's exactly what you need for the test because on the test, you're going to see Parkinson's disease and then you're going to need that information to come to mind. Okay, we're drawing these connections. Think about how your brain works. It's this big network of neurons and one input needs to, needs to generate this output of memory. By doing that repeatedly up until the point of the exam, that's how we get it. So, and you can you can stagger this out a little bit. So, like delayed recall is actually a strategy that, that um, therapists will use with geriatric populations or people who are having memory problems. So, what you do is you um, have them learn something, you teach them something, and then you have them recall it. So, you have them teach it back to you or say it or whatever, and then you cue them to do the same thing in increasing time time increments. So. For us, with them, it might be like really short, like a minute and then three minutes and then whatever. But for us, you could do that. Um, if you feel more comfortable, you could like, again, like I said, within an hour for sure, I would say re- actively recall it once. And then, you know, like three hours later, you might want to actively recall it again. And then you're going to want to actively recall it the next day and the next day. Right. So just like, like plan out times and like, maybe you'll have this big long list of things to recall. The point being is that you just want to have the your, put your brain in the habit of giving you the information you need when you see something without like all of your notes in front of you because that's you're not going to have those and that won't help to the degree that being able to remember this stuff on your own will. Okay, so that was R R R. The next one is so red beard so R in red. So this is the rule of seven. There's this really interesting thing that if you took like maybe a high school psychology class or college psychology class, you may have found this out. I thought that's where I learned it and I thought it was really cool. Um, When they were going to first add, I think it was area codes to phone numbers, they were just going to add on um, like three digits and then they were going to be these 10 digit phone numbers. But psychologists actually said like, yo, wait, hold on, we need to do this differently because it turns out that studies show that that the human brain is really good at remembering sets of information with as many as about seven-ish pieces. So a phone number being seven digits long is pretty doable. The trouble is that when you added three more digits up to 10, just the way human brains work, um, it's it's significantly harder to remember 10 pieces or more of information than it is to remember seven, about like around seven. So that's why they added the hyphens. So they grouped these uh, phone numbers into three separate categories of three or four numbers. So think about your area code. Like you don't think of it as three separate digits. My area code for my cell phone is 952. I don't think about that as three separate letters or numbers. I think of it as one grouping of numbers similar to words even, right? There's 26 letters, but we don't think about like the word study as S-T-U-D-Y, it's like the group of those together and it's a concept, it's a thing, it's its own deal. So it's not five separate pieces of information, it's one, even though it's a group. So that's um, why mnemonics are so beneficial. This is me like pitching myself. Mnemonics are awesome because they take something that can be like really big and expansive and it brings it down into a much more manageable number of bits of information. So thinking about like Allen cognitive levels, like you could try to remember all that stuff. Um, and then you're going from one 
sort of stimulus, which is seeing the word Allen cognitive levels to then remembering like 50 bits of information, or you can use a mnemonic and then remember something, especially if it's like visual or put into something like a format that's easier to remember. Um, that's much, much easier to, to handle. So mnemonics or just like kind of condensing, like I learned all this stuff about Parkinson's, but really all this stuff I learned is kind of into this one category of like ataxia or movement problems. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's like cognitively related, right? So just breaking it down into like, like groupings is going to make it a lot easier, if not into like full on mnemonics. Okay. So you want to, you just want to stick seven or honestly fewer, the fewer, the better, but that maximum number of things you want, like one input to cause you to remember is seven and no more, ideally less. Um, I'm going to skip around a little bit in this mnemonic. Again, I sort of stretched it to get RRR red beard. So the order is not important, but, um, so I'm going to go to D draw connections. So connections are really important as you're studying. This is kind of like obvious, but I just thought it bared mentioning as you're studying. So you should, you should like, let's say you're going to start studying strokes. Um, you want to kind of conjure up in your head, everything you know about strokes. And then as you're learning new things, you want to try to fit them in there. Right? So like, again, this mnemonic or like this grouping or this box, however you want to picture it, you want to open it up and familiarize with everything that's already in there. And then anything that's new, you want to like kind of compare and contrast it with what you already know and just make it fit in there. Like make it feel at home. Right. Uh, so just try to keep everything together. If you've, if there's like a mnemonic from somewhere else on this podcast or some other thing you've studied and it makes sense with something that you're coming across now, like draw those connections, web it in, bring it all together and try to make them stick to each other. So the more things are interconnected, the better really consciously try to draw connections between separate sources of stuff that you're, you're learning. Uh, so that's D. We're gonna go back to E. So red beard. We did R and D. And now we're doing E. E is efficiency. This is again the similar concept what we already talked about. But if you're a mathy person, you can use one of these little like philosophical math equations. And I said efficiency equals applicability divided by time. So that means that like if you're studying something, studying anything takes about the same amount of time. You could be studying like pediatrics generally, or like you know, a diagnosis generally, or you could be getting into like specific diagnostic criteria and, and all this, you know, you can get into the weeds as much as you want, as you can go as deep as you want. And there's going to be something out there that you can study, but you should keep in mind that that's using like a specific amount of time. And you should like, I think the the biggest way to think about it is like, how many questions on the test is this possibly going to show up on? And if the answer is like, maybe one, then your time is probably best spent elsewhere. If you can stick to the, the topics and the level of specificity that's more likely to be relevant to at least a couple of questions on the test, your time is being much better spent than memorizing and learning all kinds of very, very specific things that are, you know may or may not, but just based on like pure statistics are not likely to be helpful to you on the test. 
Um, I, no matter how you slice it, there's going to be a ton of information that you studied that did not come up on your exam. And there's going to be a fair number of bits of information that you never studied that came up on your exam. That's just how it goes. But it's a numbers game here. Again, you want to stick to the, the topics and sort of the level of generality that's going to be the most like helpful to you based on how much time it costs you to study. All right. So that's efficiency. Uh, moving down, so we're into the RRR red beard. We're into the beard part here. So B stands for be the writer. And that's the writer of the test. A lot of people have this weird relationship with tests. It's almost like they're this like being all to its own and it's scary and oh no. But the test was made by people. In fact, one of my professors and like I think one or two of the guest lecturers we had while we were in school said like, yeah, like, NBCOT, like I'm one of the the test writers. They asked me to write some tests, so I write tests for their exam. Um, so these are made by people. And now, so think about it. Like if you <laughs> if you were given that task to write some questions for the exam, how would you go about it? The main thing that I think that this perspective of looking at test questions, um, the main sort of benefit of it is this question. What do they want you to prove you know? When you write, like, let's say you wanted to write a question about strokes. You don't just sit down and start writing a question like, your patient Dave has a stroke. And it's not like this novel thing, right? It's not like that. You, you would start with something about strokes that's a specific, like, valuable piece of information that you want the person taking this question in the future to be able to demonstrate that they understand. So, for example, let's say you want them to demonstrate that they know that uh, aphasia is generally connected to left hemisphere damage on the stroke, right? So you would write some, you would, that's however you start. And then you would write the question, if that makes sense. So you would say, you see in this a question could be, you see in this patient's chart that they've had a left MCA, uh, which of the following would be a good, like, uh, element of your evaluation. And then one of the answers would be something along the lines of, uh, you know, checking for aphasia, checking for ability to communicate verbally, whatever. Um, so then some of the other answers would be things that would then be associated with things that would definitely not be part of like an MCA typically. So it would be stuff like they're having visual spatial, whatever, or like fine motor function of the left of like the left upper extremity, right? Like all these things that would typically be associated with like a right MCA, or it could even be mean enough to say like include consult consultation of the family during your evaluation to gather information about the patient's home environment or something indicating that you just are expecting that, you know, communication with this person verbally about something as detail oriented as their home environment may not be, possible and you should go in with a plan B, right? That one, that'd be like a, that's probably a bit more of like a challenging question. That's kind of a dick move on the, for the quest, uh, part of the person writing it, but it's totally possible. I get that the question as written is not like the first version of it is not that hard, but this concept apply, can apply to any question, no matter how difficult or specific, especially the specific ones. That's, uh, I, I mean, I just see people all the time with the question. It's like, I don't like, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it's understanding. I don't know what it's getting at. And if you just think of it yourself as like the person writing this question, or you just picture them writing this question, like there's one thing that they know 
that they want to see if you know it also. And I just think approaching questions from that, like really kind of pull the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz, so to speak, and like really let you just view the question in a different way. That's very beneficial and helps you get to the answer a lot faster and easier. Okay, the next thing, so beard, the next one is endurance, B-E, endurance. And this is because the, the test, yes, the test, the main thing about the test is you need to know a lot of information. But the other thing about the test is you need to be able to like really jam, like really just get into the like focus and, and hit this test for four hours. And that's really hard. It, it definitely, that's an element of the exam that goes underappreciated and it really would be worth focusing some of like your study plan on that specifically. So I would totally make sure that you, um, whether it's like a prepackaged whole exam or one that you use some other resources like test questions for, and you sit down and do it yourself, but try to take a, a practice exam for like three and a half to four hours, like really marathon this stuff get used to what that feels like. And um, even if you're taking like shorter practice practice exams of like 20 questions or more or less, like really try to keep up that pace of about a question a minute. Get used to doing that. Um, if you know everything, but you're just like thinking through questions too slowly, you will not pass the exam if you don't finish most of it. Uh, so it just it just bears saying that you should you should get used to the pacing and like just frankly like the grueling nature of sitting down for four hours to do something very cognitively demanding. So A B E A A is answer everything. Most people's experience with these bigger type like standardized exams are ones to get into college and the one they took to get into grad school. So like SAT, ACT, and then the GRE. In those exams, you're told that you need to narrow things down before you guess, because if you guess, if you get a question wrong, it actually is like negative points. It's not a zero. It actually counts against you to make that like, if you just guessed A on every question, you would get one quarter of them right, but altogether you would actually end up with zero. So it penalizes guessing. The NBCOT exam does not work that way. Whether a question is left uh, unanswered or whether the question is answered incorrectly, it is treated exactly the same. It's just no points. It is to your advantage, even if you have absolutely no idea what the question is talking about, it could be in French. You should still answer the question. Um, always, always guess. Obviously, you want to narrow down and get rid of any questions that or any answers that you know aren't right. And then you want to guess. Speaking on that and kind of related to being the writer as well, uh, there are a lot of questions in general and also on the NBCOT exam, but on any exam that are very specific about the kind of answer they're looking for. So for example, using one that's like a bit abstracted, that's not to do with like NBCOT exam material would be like, which citrus fruit contains the following proteins or whatever, right? Like something like that. And then the answers would be like banana, watermelon, lemon, orange, right? Even if all of the information that follows that beginning part perfectly describes a banana. A banana is not a citrus fruit, and so it can't be the answer. There's a lot of questions just on any exam that sort of fall into that category. If they tell you, like, at the beginning that they want a specific kind of thing as the answer, it doesn't matter what comes after that. Like, just get rid of all the stuff that doesn't fit into that category right away. Uh, so yeah, anyway, so that will fall like, like trickier kinds of that will fall into the NBCOT exam. They'll be asking for like, 
you know, what sort of like evaluation strategy or whatever, what assessment would, would be X, Y, or Z. And uh, there may be some answers that don't fit into that category, right? So you should just eliminate those, even if they look tempting based on whatever else is in the question. They're not right because they aren't the thing the question is asking for. Just keep that in mind and it really helps um, you narrow things down even if you're just going to end up guessing at the end anyway. Last one, so beard, B-E-A-R-D, don't sweat. Honestly, there the test has a lot of questions and frankly, you can afford to get a good number of them wrong. Uh, so you're going to come, you will, I'm promising you, you will come across questions you don't know about information you've never heard of, about something you've never studied. It's okay. Like narrow it down by one or two if you can and guess and keep going. Expect it. It's going to happen. Don't let it phase you. It's just part of the experience. Uh, Okay. So now my last couple um, recommendations for strategy are about the day of the test itself. And the first thing is get excited, not nervous. Your natural feeling going in this exam is going to be nervousness, right? You're apprehensive. Oh gosh, here it is. I've spent 500 something dollars on this and it's going to really suck to get like not pass. All those things are true, but they're not helpful. Um, but they are sort of amping you up, right? That anxiety, your hormone levels, all this stuff. Your body is going to be tense. Your mind is going to be tense. Now, a lot of people will say, you need to calm down. You need to be in Zen mode. And that's actually really hard to do because everything your body is telling you is not that. So I think it's easier to pivot to an emotion that's very similar, like especially physiologically experienced similar to what you actually are currently feeling. So you can. it's much easier to tell yourself, I'm not nervous, I'm excited, to then to tell yourself, I'm not nervous, I'm calm, right? So get excited. This is your chance to prove that you are an awesome OT. This is your chance to take all the stuff you've studied for the last few weeks or months, plus all the stuff you've been learning for the last few years in school, and just dump it. You're going to rock this exam. Just get pumped up. It's going to be great. That's why, actually, I don't refer to it as like exam day or test day. It's game day. Again, treat the exam kind of like a game. Get in the head of the writer, like try to sort of game the test, figure out like which questions are purposely there to try to trick me up or which answers are there to try to like confuse me and which answers are there to just like be obviously wrong and what is the right answer. Treat it like a game. Think quickly. Don't be, you know, don't get caught up on the stuff that's that's uh, slowing you down or, or making you frustrated. Just like, just keep in a good rhythm, keep positive, keep excited about it. Uh, the next thing is just keep swimming again. Like just don't get caught up in the weeds. If there's a question you don't know, that's totally fine. There will be those. Those will happen. Get, like guess and move on. Uh, <laughs> the other recommendation is frankly a little bit like opposed to the get excited. I want you to get excited, but also like once it's over or even like for momentarily during the exam, you should expect to feel terrible. <laughs> this exam is hard. It, it's just tough. It's tough to like sit down and do something you don't want to do for four hours, especially that's that like mentally demanding. It's tough to like deal with all the emotions of it. This It's just hard. I taught like me included and like many, many, many of my friends and classmates. I haven't met a person yet who walked out of the exam and said they felt amazing. Like I totally aced it. Everybody feels awful. So it's just going to be 
bad, again, try to get excited. This is going to be a great time. But also like if you catch yourself feeling horrible, like don't think that you're the only one, like just brush it off. Keep going. This is hard and it's not fun. And no one is like super confident walking out of there. That is just how it is. So don't get all nervous and anxious that like I'm failing and everyone else is doing fine. Like just, you got this. It's just how it works. And the last one is just treat yourself. Have something to look forward to after the exam. Have something that you've wanted for a while or you want to do or just like a way to relax that you haven't been able to like really enjoy for a while because of all the the stress with this thing. Like just have something to look forward to later that day that you take the exam or like the next day or something. Just be ready to relax and just take your mind off of it and just enjoy your life in a, in a way that you haven't for a while. Um, and that's that's it. So I hope these were helpful. Again, we'll be getting back to some more content that will actually be on the exam. But I wanted to give people sort of like an overall sort of strategy thing about how I approached it that I found really helpful and um, some just ways to approach studying that will help you retain the information and also prioritize what you're studying and when. So anyway, you guys rock. Uh, hang in there and I will see you later. Hey, just remember that this and every other episode of the OT Exam Prepper comes with a study guide at otexamprepper.com. For this one particularly, it should be a good way to just be able to kind of remind yourself of these things, jog your memory, so you won't need to scrub through 30 minutes of audio to come to something again. Obviously, feel free to listen to it again if you need a refresher on this stuff, but I think the study guide is a good way of sort of at least laying it out there so you can keep it fresh in your mind while you're practicing some of these new strategies while studying. Best of luck. And you guys rock. Last but not least, music this episode was provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Thanks, Kevin. Mm-hmm.